0: Hey, this is Kyle Eidelman from Southeast Christian Church, and I'm gonna thank you for listening to the message today. As we open up the scriptures together, I pray that this message inspires you, challenges you, and is the right word at just the right time in your life. Enjoy the message. We are in a series talking about the will of God and how it's always unfolding in our lives, sometimes difficult to see. From where we sit in the present, it can be confusing. It can feel dark, but I've made the argument that the most common prayer is somehow connected to this question of what is your will, God, for my life? It's certainly the most common question I get as a pastor. Hey, what's God's will for my life? It's not always worded that way. Sometimes it's around a decision or around a relationship or around an uncertain future, but we wanna know, God, what do you want for me? What's your will for my life? I I, I think when we ask that question, we're typically looking for one of three things. A formula, a feeling, or what I would call a fortune teller. A fortune teller is um, somebody that you pay to tell you the future and only include the good stuff. Like that's, that's what you want from a fortune teller. You want somebody to just take away the bad stuff and let you know that it's gonna be okay. And sometimes that's what we're looking for from God. We're in the dark and we just want to know where we're going and where we're gonna end up. Let me illustrate it this way. If we could just bring the house lights down, make it dark in here. We pray and we ask God for his will. And what he seems to typically do is give us, um, a flashlight approach. A flashlight allows you to see the next step or maybe the next couple steps in front of you, but that's about it. Like you can't really see where you're going. You don't know where you're supposed to turn. Certainly don't know where you're gonna end up. You can just take the next step. This is often how God's will works in scripture. Look at Joseph's great grandfather, Abraham. God says to Abraham, I want you to leave your home and I want you to go. Yeah, okay, where are we going? Yeah, I'll tell you along the way. Just pack things up, tell your wife you're moving, but I'm not going to tell you where you're moving yet. And Abraham is commended for his faith, and we're told without faith, it's impossible to please God. And so the will of God is often like this flashlight. It lets us take one step at a time, but it requires, it requires faith. I tell my kids, the sooner you can embrace the adventure of God's will, the better. Like if you just accepts the fact that he knows what you don't, he can see what you can't, and you can trust him to just lead you in the next step. One thing will lead to another. That's how God's will unfolds. We get a flashlight. What we typically want is more of a, one of these. This is a, a floodlight. That's, that's what we're going for. When we pray for God's will, we, we want to see everything. We want to know where we're going. We want to know that it's gonna be okay. We wanna be sure of where we're gonna end up. And without a floodlight, we start to feel pretty anxious or often feel overwhelmed because we look around and we look ahead and there's so much uncertainty. And so when we pray for God's will, this is what we're often praying for. Is God tell me what's gonna happen. Let me know everything's gonna work out the way I want it to. It's gonna work out okay. And bring the lights back up, but I think a fortune teller is sometimes what we're looking for, or sometimes it's a formula where we enter in the appropriate data and God works like this uh, GPS system and he tells you, here's where you're going. Here's how long you're gonna be here and then you're gonna turn right and if a detour's coming, I'll let you know. Don't you worry about it. And, and so we, we give God our destination and we just want him to give us directions. That's how we sometimes think of God's will. Or sometimes what we want is a feeling When we're praying for God's will and we're trying to discern what that might be, we want it to match up with a feeling. How do you know it's God's will? Well, I feel, be careful whenever you answer it that way. There's something wrong if it just turns out that God's will always seems to align with your feelings of comfort, convenience, and happiness. Like that's not how it works in scripture. It's not always how it works. God's will doesn't always just uh, match up with what we want. In fact, it oftentimes doesn't. And so how do we know the will of God in our lives? We've been studying Joseph in the Old Testament to get a better understanding of how we can see, how we can lean into the unfolding will of God in our lives. Joseph, as we're gonna see here in the next few minutes, needed to experience some deliverance so that he could know the will of God for his present and his future. He needed to experience some deliverance so he could let go of some things from the past that were holding him back. And I don't think Joseph is the only one. I think there are some people listening to this who, who need to be delivered because you are letting some guilt or shame, you are letting some bitterness and anger from the past hold you back and keep you from moving forward. You're you're letting something that happened to you get in the way of what God wants to do for you, and and you need some deliverance in your life, I, I think that God wants to accomplish that before you leave here today. I believe that that's possible through Jesus. I think it's his will for you to be delivered from some things in your past. And if you came in carrying some bitterness and anger, and you got a story to attach to it, a story of hurt, rejection, betrayal, abuse, resentment, There's deliverance for you in the name of Jesus before you leave here. When Joseph was 17 years old, picture him, he sits in a pit. He is pleading to his brothers outside the pit to spare him. Please don't do what you're about to do. One of his brothers suggests selling him into slavery. Please don't, don't, please don't do this. He has lived a very privileged and comfortable life, but he's sold into slavery by his own brothers. You wanna talk about hurt. Hurts. A lot of you know this all too well, but when someone you don't know that well or haven't put too much trust in does something to hurt you or they say something that wounds you, I mean, that's hard, but it's nothing compared to when it's a relationship that, that you were counting on. When it's a brother, when it's someone that you've trusted in, it's a much deeper wound. The, the depth of the wound is often in direct correlation to the depth of the relationship. And so for Joseph, just imagine how he would have felt as his brother sell him into slavery. This act of cruelty would have felt like it destroyed his life and crushed whatever dreams he might've had. It would have left a very deep wound. And I know some of you know a lot about that. The Bible says in Hebrews chapter 12, verse 15, watch out. It's a warning here. Watch out that no poisonous root of bitterness grows up to trouble you, corrupting many. Well, watch out that this um, root of bitterness, this seed that got planted in your life doesn't take on a life of its own, and suddenly, though you didn't mean to become this person, you've become this person who's angry all the time, and you're not even sure why. You've become this person who's easily offended and and very sensitive, and, and people don't know how you're gonna respond. When you walk in, when they walk in the door, they're not sure what they're gonna get. And it's because you have this root of bitterness that has grown and maybe you're not even fully aware of it because it was long enough ago and you wanted to tell yourself you've moved on and you've forgotten about it, but the people around you can feel it. It's affecting parts of your life. It's like this poison that has just spread. And you told yourself, I'm over it. You didn't mean to, you didn't mean to let the anger you felt towards your dad be transferred onto your husband or or the, the bitterness you felt to your mom be transferred onto your wife. Like you didn't mean to do that. You didn't mean to transfer all these feelings you had towards your ex onto your kids. You didn't mean for them to pay that bill, but it's this root and if it goes unchecked, it just spreads. It's this toxin, it's this poison, and it affects everything. A seed of offense gets planted. And unless we deal with it, it grows. Last week, we left Joseph. He was the second most powerful man in the world. So it seems like he's moving on. Seems like it's a new day for Joseph. Seems like the past is beyond, behind him. God has redeemed him. He's got this position of influence and affluence, by the way. He gets married, has two kids. Here's what he names his first son, Manasseh. Manasseh's name means God has made me forget all the troubles and everyone in my father's family. <laughs> okay, you know how you know you haven't forgotten all the troubles? you name your son, I forgot all my troubles. Like that's how you know. And every time he calls Manasseh's name, He's reminding himself, oh yeah, I forgot about all the troubles of the past and all the troubles from my father's family. And some of you get that, like you just, you just don't want it to affect your life anymore. You're just tired of it. And so you'd say to yourself, I've forgotten about it, but you haven't forgotten about it. You say to yourself, it's not that big of a deal, but it's a big deal. You say to yourself, well, it can't be that, it must be that this, but it's that. You say it was a long time ago. I was a teenager then. And maybe you were, but here's Joseph 20 plus years later and he has been delivered from slavery and he's been delivered from prison, but he is still a slave to resentment. He's still, I think, imprisoned by this bitterness that he felt towards what his brothers did to him. As a reminder, Joseph interpreted Pharaoh's dream. Remember this from last week? And he told Pharaoh, there's gonna be seven years of plenty, and then it's gonna be followed by seven years of this um, horrible famine. So we need to prepare these first seven years for the next seven years, and that's what Joseph does. He is in charge of it all. We catch up to him in chapter 42. And the seven years of plenty are over, the famine has hit, people are starving, including people hundreds of miles away in his own hometown. And so in chapter 42, we read that Joseph's dad, Jacob, is dealing with the very real potential of his family starving to death. And so he sends 10 of his sons to Egypt. He hears that there's food in Egypt, there's grain in Egypt. He sends 10 of his sons to Egypt in hopes that they can bring home some food he keeps one son at home. His name's Benjamin. That's Joseph's little brother, his full brother from his mom, Rachel. Keeps Benjamin at home. Doesn't want to risk losing Benjamin, not after what happened to Joseph. Chapter 42 says that the brothers arrive in Egypt and they bow before Joseph with their faces to the ground. They have no idea it's Joseph. They have no idea. I mean, it's, it's been all these years later and by now Joseph dresses like an Egyptian. He talks like an Egyptian. He, um, he walks like an Egyptian, like the whole, the whole thing. And they don't know it's him. They don't recognize that it's Joseph Verse seven. It says though that Joseph recognized his brothers instantly, but he pretended to be a stranger. He spoke harshly to them. Where are you from? He demanded. His tone changes. Imagine the scene, right? Joseph sits in this place of power all day as, as people from different families and different groups come and ask for food. And Joseph looks up and he sees his brothers in line and he recognizes them instantly. And it takes a minute for his mind to register what his eyes are seeing and he can feel his anger. Suddenly it comes back to him suddenly he's a 17 year old being stripped naked and sold into slavery and, and he speaks harshly he has this um this anger this retaliation in his on his mind his his brothers try to explain themselves no we're not spies we're not we're actually all from the same family we all have the same father there's even one more of us who didn't come a, a younger brother we have benjamin but we're not, we're not spies, we're, we're from the same family. And Joseph throws them all in prison. After three days, his heart seems to soften some. He tells them that he's gonna test their story by keeping one of them, Simeon, in prison and sending the rest back home with food for their starving families. But they need to bring their younger brother back to prove their story that they're not spies. So verse 21 tells us about this conversation in the midst of this that the brothers have with each other about what's happening to them. They have the conversation in front of Joseph. They don't think Joseph can understand them. They're speaking Hebrew to one another. He's been speaking through an interpreter. Verse 21, speaking among themselves, they said, clearly we are being punished because of what we did to Joseph long ago. We saw his anguish when he pleaded for his life, but we wouldn't listen, and that's why we're in trouble. And Joseph hears that this is their response. First response is this shame. As much as he's struggling to forgive them, they are struggling to forgive themselves. Joseph needs some deliverance, but he's not the only one in this story. Their first thought is God is doing this to us. A lot of people have this idea about God's will, that it's God's will to somehow punish you for things you did a long time ago. And when something bad happens to you, you think, well, this must be it. He's just been waiting and now he's gonna pay me back. And if that's your idea of God's will, I'm surprised you're even here listening to this because if you think God's will works that way, then you tend to avoid him as much as possible. Your, your idea is I'm just gonna stay off his radar, but that's, that's not the will of God. God's will here is gonna be for his brothers to experience deliverance. And, and so Joseph overhears this conversation and it says in verse 24, now he turned away from them and he began to weep. When he regained his composure, he spoke to them as, again. As much as Joseph wants to believe it's over, it's not over. Like those tears are just right there. The brothers get home and they tell Jacob what happened. And, and they say, hey, we gotta take Benjamin back with us to prove that we're not spies. And, and Jacob says, it's not gonna happen. I'm not letting Benjamin go with you, but food starts to run out and they're hungry. And Jacob knows his family's gonna starve if he doesn't do something. Chapter 43, verse one, but the famine continued to ravage the land of Canaan. When the grain they had brought from Egypt was almost gone, Jacob said to his sons, go back, go back to Egypt and buy a little more food. Dad, we can't, we can't go back without Benjamin. Well, you're not taking Benjamin. Dad, if we go back without Benjamin, we're not gonna get any food. He's gonna execute all of us. We can't go back without Benjamin and Jacob has no other choice but, but to allow Benjamin to go. In verse 26, they get to Egypt. They are before Joseph and it says, they bow down before him to the ground. And Joseph surely remembers in this moment, oh, that dream, that dream I had when I was 17, that dream I had 20 years ago. And in that moment, I think he suddenly started to realize on a whole nother level, the reality of God's sovereign power. He suddenly begins to see, oh, God's will is working in ways that I didn't always understand. And maybe he got glimpses of it, but now it just becomes very clear. It took 20 years. Sometimes it takes a long time to see it. It took 20 years, but now he sees it. And as he sees it, he begins to have some room for deliverance to take place. Deliverance can happen because he begins to recognize that everything he'd gone through, what was done to him, was used by God to accomplish his, his will, to accomplish his purpose, to bring about good. And, and so Joseph, it says in verse 30, he was deeply moved at the sight of his brothers and he hurried out and he looked for a place to weep. He went into his private room and he wept there. He, he pulls himself together, comes back out. Still hasn't revealed himself to them. They don't know who he is. He sends them back with Food for the, their families. But this time, he gives these uh, secret instructions to plant a silver cup in Benjamin's bag. And then just before they get ready to head back home, Joseph sends in his men and accuses his brothers of stealing. And they are like, no, well, we would never do that. We would never do that. But then there's a search. And in their search, they find, of course, the silver cup that was planted in Benjamin's bag. And, and the brothers begin to tear their clothes in grief. They know what's gonna happen. They they know that Benjamin's gonna be executed. And one of the brothers speaks up, his name is Judah. Judah steps forward and says, my life for his, my life for Benjamin's life. As a reminder, chapter 37, Joseph's in the pit. He's listening as his brothers argue about what's gonna happen to him. And Judah says, let's just sell him into slavery. At least we can make some money off of them that way. The same brother who suggested selling him into slavery now steps forward and says of his younger brother, My life for his life. And Joseph, chapter 45, verse 1, could no longer contain himself, could no longer control himself before his attendants, and he cried out, Have everyone leave my presence. So there was no one with Joseph when he made himself known to his brothers and he wept so loudly that the Egyptians heard him. Now look, remember who we're talking about here. Here's a man who had spent most of his adult life as a slave and as a prisoner, and now is the second most powerful man in the world. If Joseph knew how to do anything, it was to um, compartmentalize. Like he, he knew how to keep his emotions in check, but all of this is just too much. Third time that he's cried, and here's one of the things I would say to you, is when deliverance takes place, tears are often present. I'm not saying they're always present. I'm not saying you can't be delivered without tears. I'm not saying tears mean that means that deliverance happened. I'm just saying that when supernatural deliverance takes place, tears are often part of the story can't hold him back, and Joseph couldn't, he just couldn't hold him back. He wanted, to think he, had, he wanted to think that he had moved on. He wanted to believe that all those troubles of the past were behind him, but that pain and that hurt was still right there at the surface, and he has everyone leave his presence, and he has to decide in this moment what he's gonna do with his brothers. They still don't know who he is. Let's push pause just for a second on this story. Okay, I wanna take you to um, another story in Genesis of two brothers, Jacob's dad, or excuse me, Joseph's dad, Jacob, and his brother Esau, Joseph's uncle Esau. Jacob had cheated Esau out of his birthright, which was a really big deal, manipulated his brother out of it. Esau was furious with Jacob, the younger brother, for what he had done. Jacob fleed for his life, ran for his life, And and these two brothers, Jacob and Esau, Joseph's dad and uncle had avoided each other all these years. They hadn't had anything to do with each other. And and Jacob was scared to death of what would happen if he ever encountered Esau. And then we get to this scene in Genesis chapter 33, where Jacob can't avoid Esau, uh, can't avoid Esau any longer. Like he doesn't have an option. He's going to have to confront Esau and, and he looks out and he sees Esau is there. Esau has 400 men with him. And so what Jacob does before he goes to meet his brother is he divides his children into different groups and hoping that some of them would be able to be spared. And he goes to meet his brother Esau. Then Jacob went on ahead and he approached his brother and he bowed down to the ground seven times before him. Then Esau ran to meet him and embraced him. And he threw his arms around his neck and kissed him. And they both wept. And if you looked closely, peering around the crowd was a boy named Joseph. And he's watching his dad and his uncle. He doesn't know everything, but he knows he's never seen his dad act like this before. He's never seen his dad bow down like this before. And he sees his uncle Esau, big bear of a man, 400 men with him start running towards his dad. Joseph's heart, what's he gonna do? And he watches as his dad and his uncle embrace and weep. I wonder if he'd ever seen, seen his dad cry before that moment. Sees his dad cry and they, they embrace. And now here he is with his brothers all these years later. Like some of you are carrying around this resentment and bitterness and you were hurt and, and what happened to you wasn't right. And you keep hanging on to this and if you need a little motivation to help you take a step towards forgiveness and reconciliation think for a a second about some of the eyes that are watching you and what they're learning about grace and what they're learning about reconciliation and what they're learning about the difference that jesus makes or doesn't make in someone's life when they're hurt or offended when they're wounded joseph sees all of this and now He's with his own brothers. He has his own decision to make. Joseph said to his brothers, Come close to me. And when they had done so, he said, I'm your brother, Joseph. You know, you know, uh, <laughs> yeah, the one you sold into slavery. He doesn't try to pretend like they didn't do anything wrong. He's going to offer forgiveness, but forgiveness is not acting like what happened wasn't a big deal. He says, I'm Joseph, the one that you sold into slavery and now don't be distressed and do not be angry with yourselves for selling me here because it was to save lives that God sent me ahead of you so then it was not you who sent me here but God. Do you see how the will of God is what gave him the freedom to experience deliverance? that he recognizes how God took everything that happened to him and he folded that together to accomplish his purpose and that allowed him to experience deliverance. Like for some of you, I, I, I think if you're like me, you tell yourself you've experienced deliverance, but really what you've done is gotten really good at denial. You've, you've really just gotten good at pretending like what happened to you wasn't a big deal when it was a big deal. You're acting like you've moved on when you haven't moved on. And, and what you need is deliverance, not more denial. And, and Joseph is able to experience this because he has a, a more full picture of God's sovereign will in his life. He offers forgiveness, but they never apologized. So if you're sitting there thinking, "I'm hey, I'll, I'll forgive them when they say they're sorry," yeah, their apology is not a prerequisite for your forgiveness. That's not how it's not how it works with the gospel. Like God gives us that kind of grace so that we can give it freely to others, even if they don't ask for it. About 15 years ago, an out-of-state. Um, relative of mine got into some financial trouble and reached out to us uh, for some help. He was in a really bad situation. He humbly asked us to loan him $7,000. And he told us he'd pay it back by the end of the year. I told this story like six years ago and someone on Thursday said, are you gonna tell that? You're telling that story again? I'm like, yeah, it's a $7,000 story. I'm gonna tell it more than <laughs> once. Okay, my money's worth. We did not have $7,000. But we pulled some money out of savings and we loaned it to him, thinking we'd be paid back by the end of the year. And we, we needed to be paid back. And some of that money was for savings for retirement. Some of that money, though, was for bills and some things that had to be taken care of more immediately. And the year came and went. And we didn't hear anything from him. He didn't bring it up. He didn't offer any kind of explanation. He avoided us over the holidays I tried to call him, set up a payment plan, didn't return my calls. We ended up selling him our car that we had and buying a, a little older minivan. It was in pretty rough shape, so we could use the difference to take care of some things we needed to take care of. And I just didn't do well with it. Several years went by, and every time I had trouble with that minivan, I could feel that root of bitterness begin to grow. When I see him a few years later post a, a picture on Facebook of the new truck he bought, that brood of bitterness <laughs> begins to grow. My, I remember, though, the conversation I had with my wife. She said, I think we really need to have some kind of relationship with him. But as long as he feels like he owes us money, I don't think it's going to happen. We, we need to forgive the debt. We need to tell him that he doesn't owe us. And I disagreed. <laughs> I'm like, <laughs> no, you know, we can't do that. Like, we can't. Besides, it's, it's enabling him, and he needs to take responsibility for his own decisions, and there's no way, there's no way we're gonna forgive that debt. She so said, we need to do it. I said, I, we can't. And I remember where we were when we did. We, we stood with him, and I said, hey, we, we just wanna forgive the debt. It's okay. And in my mind, at least subconsciously, I had played this out as this moment where he was going to be incredibly grateful, where he was going to be like, I can't believe you're doing this, where he was going to say how sorry he was and that we would embrace and I would tell him it's okay. And uh, that is not what happened. And he acted like it wasn't that big of a deal. and, And I just struggled with it. Even though I had sent the debt away, even though I had released it, I had to keep reminding myself that I had released it. And I was reminded of it again this week as I was preparing for this sermon. I I happened to hear on the radio this idea that when you you save, for every dollar you save in your 20s, it's $88 in your retirement. And I'm like, I'm doing the math. And I'm like, that's like (laughs) $600,000. And I have to remind myself, okay, we released it. And so you release it and, and then you remind yourself it's been released. I've, oh yeah, I let that go. Now you ask me, have I loaned him money since? No I, no, I haven't, right? Like Joseph is still careful here as he extends trust. But forgiveness means that you cancel a debt. You release what's owed to you. It's not to say you weren't owed something. It means you are letting go of what was owed. You are, you are letting it go. And, and that's hard. And I know the illustration I use there for some of you is nothing. Like what you've gone through, that's nothing. Like what, can, I know that. But what we tend to do when we need deliverance in this way is instead of release it, we, we repress it. Like we stuff it down. We tell ourselves it's good, it's fine. I'm over it but it begins to seep out. And that's why Ephesians 4 says, get rid of it. Throw it it in the trash. That, That bitterness and rage that you keep carrying around, you need to get rid of it. You can't just stuff it down because it always, that pressure builds and it always comes out. Another thing that we do is we rehearse it. There's something within us that says, as long as I remember what they did to me, they're not getting away with it. So I'll just keep rehearsing in my mind. The more you rehearse it, the more they get away with it again and again and again. The Bible says in Ephesians 4 as well that anger is what gives the enemy, the devil, a foothold. It gives, you, it gives him access to every part of you. Anger is unique in that way. And, and it says that anger, unresolved anger, grieves the Holy Spirit of God in you. That if you're a follower of Jesus and you have the Holy Spirit in you, that your anger makes him sad. And it, Third thing we tried to do is we retaliate. Joseph was in a position to do this, but he doesn't. He does a little, but I know that you may not have that kind of position of power. We find other ways to retaliate. Like we will try to recruit opponents. We try to get other people to turn against the person who hurt us. We talk to other people about the person who hurt us instead of talking to the person who hurt us. And that's a way to retaliate. Or, or we go with social isolation. We turn the cold shoulder to, her, to that person. We, we act like we don't see them. We pretend like they, they don't exist. It's kind of the middle school approach. I'm not gonna play with you anymore. It's kind of the idea there. Uh, constantly critical is another way we deal with this where we just begin to criticize every little thing or we constantly remind the person of what they did. I remember what you said to me in the parking lot four years ago, and we hold on to those things as a way to retaliate, but because of Jesus, we release. That's what forgiveness means. One of the definitions in scripture is to release freely, to let go of what someone owes you. You're not going to demand payment anymore. Now, (laughs) It doesn't mean that what happened to you isn't a big deal. It doesn't mean that healing will be immediate. It doesn't mean that that you're gonna make excuses for the other person. It doesn't mean that you refuse to press charges if a crime has been committed. It doesn't mean that abuse should be tolerated. It doesn't mean that you're, you're diminishing it or reducing the seriousness of it, but you are going to release your bitterness and your anger to Jesus. You're gonna release it to God's will. You're gonna say, God, I'm gonna trust you to take what happened to me and work it out for my good. I I can't imagine how that's gonna be true. In my mind, from where I sit, with my little flashlight, I have no idea how that could possibly happen, but I'm confident in your will and that your will is gonna work things out. And so I'm I'm gonna release these things to you. And so I want you to think just for a moment about what you're owed, just for a moment. Somebody owes you something Maybe they owe you money or an explanation or a childhood. They owe you a marriage, they owe you a reputation, they owe you an apology. I, think, I want you to think for a minute about what you owe someone. It's easy to think about what we're owed. It's harder to think about what we might owe. What makes this story so powerful in Genesis is not just that Joseph experiences deliverance, but his brothers do too. He forgives them and they can forgive themselves. God wants you to experience that kind of deliverance too. Deliverance is available today. It's available today. Thanks for listening. If today's message made you realize you need to take your next step with Jesus, we would love to help you with that. You can connect with us on any of our social media platforms throughout the week or visit our website at southeastchristian.org. And if you want to hear more content like this, you can check out our sermons podcast or our one at a time podcast. Both can be found everywhere. Podcasts are available. Have a great week.